Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hi, welcome to Down with D&D. I'm Sean Merwin, and today our co-host is Greg Marks. Greg is the content manager for the D&D Adventurers League, a prolific adventure writer for Wizards of the Coast and other publishers, the recipient of the 2019 D&D Icon Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Herald's Guild of DMs, and DM for easily thousands of players in his career. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, so you like literally just finished teaching and now it's time to, uh, now it's yeah, time we're to, squeezing this in between two classes <laughs> to, to D and D. It's always, that's the way a D and D freelancer's life seems to be sometimes. Yeah. Especially in uh, these COVID-19 times. No kidding. No kidding. So when you're not teaching, um, you are playing D and D or doing stuff D and D related. So could you tell us uh, just for a minute about your history with D and D, you know, when did you get started and why do you keep coming back to it? Yeah. Um, I know on your show, I've told the story of how I, my first D and D game when I was six, yes. so I won't go into as great a detail, but when I was uh, about six years old, actually about a year before my parents had divorced and my dad who was uh, trying to interest me on weekends was heard about this thing called Gen Con. Mm -hmm. And I ended up actually uh, sort of by accident playing in round two of the D&D Open mm -hmm. for a team that was short someone. And I was about six. <laughs> yep. uh, we did not advance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, Most valuable uh, player though. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that oh, must hey, have been close know. to the first Gen Con. Uh, it was at UW Parkside. Yeah. So uh, it would have been about as many Gen Cons as I am was old at the time, roughly. Right, right. In so, that yeah, neighborhood. Six, six or so, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So uh, I really got into it somewhere around uh, about seventh grade. Mm -hmm. um, my dad had uh, a year or so before, uh, actually, I had renewed or re-mentioned my, my interest in D&D, &D, and he pointed out, and I don't know why he didn't tell me before, that there was a box set, an old red box set in the yeah. attic that I could have. Oh. And so I started looking into that, got into AD&D, and then in seventh grade, one summer, the summer after, uh, after sixth grade, a neighbor kid, I was spending the summer by my grandmother in, who had a house on a lake, mm -hmm. and he, uh, he showed up one day and he's like, hey, do you want to play games? And I didn't really know this kid. And he's like, I, I like this game called D&D. &D. And I'm like, oh, I like this game. Let's play this game. And then he found a gaming club that then really, really got me into D&D. &D. So it turns out in the, the town nearby, there was a group that met every Saturday. And so we could go play D&D. &D, and that's how I really, really got into it. Now, was this in the Wisconsin, Lake Geneva, Milwaukee area? Yeah, uh, it was in a, that was in a town called West Bend. Okay. So, yeah, it's uh, north, just north of Milwaukee. So, you know, when I think of D&D &D in like the late 70s, early 80s, and, and especially like Wisconsin, that area. I, I just assume like everyone played D&D. &D. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I don't know that that was true. That's definitely probably not true. Right. Uh, but there was, there's definitely, and still is, more people that play D&D &D in this part of the country 
-hmm. when you look at, uh, as an example, so Living Greyhawk, when they divided up their regions, they did it by play numbers. Right. And there were, there were only two or three states that got their own region. Mm -hmm. And when you look at Wisconsin getting its own region and you look at the other states that got their own regions, Wisconsin's population is a lot smaller than those other states. Yeah, just to just to put that in perspective, I worked in the Keoland region, which was New York, uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So you think (laughs) of the population disparity between Wisconsin and those three states and the play numbers that meant Wisconsin got its own region. So that should tell you the uh, you know, per capita D&D gamer at, you know, in Wisconsin as opposed to the, the other parts of the world. Yeah. At my, at my previous job, someone had uh, asked me one time, hey, you play D&D, don't you? And I said, yeah. And they're like, I do too. And, I do. and like people came out of all the offices, and it was about 75% of people on the floor uh had played or still were actively playing D. yeah that's now mind you they're academics so it was a little bit more right it was skewed in a little skewed, bit in, in that direction that, that's cool so you you got into D D, uh and i did you continue playing you know some people play and then they go away and then they come back to it is it been sort of a constant in your life yeah uh i have played D and other role-playing games for ever since pretty much all the time uh what i'm playing at any given time of course varies uh D is always a favorite mm-hmm. but there you know we've had plenty of other campaigns from with different groups mm-hmm. and so you know on a on a regular month say how often are you playing not 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 even like writing or doing but how often are you are you playing uh are you counting me as dm in that sure, sure. okay uh I would say six to eight. Okay, that's 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 quite a bit. And, and of course, yeah. when you're not playing, you are doing all of your writing duties or administrative duties uh, as as a, an AL administrator. So uh, it's probably yeah. a twenty four seven. You're always on call for for that. I was uh, just talking to someone last night who was asking about how much many requests I get for things for reviewing adventures, doing whatever for adventures league. And I mentioned that in the time it took her to send her last text, I had gotten two requests. <laughs> yep. That sounds, that sounds about right. So when did you make the transition from gamer to game designer? Uh, well, that group that my uh, friend had found, Mm-hmm. Uh, had connections, which truthfully a lot of people did in southeastern Wisconsin, mm-hmm. to TSR, and they were doing playtesting. So the first product that I did any work on was playtesting uh, first edition Unearthed Arcana. Wow. And so I was, you know, uh, in middle school, and this is the first time I really started to think seriously about whether, you know, is this cavalier class balanced? Is this, you know, barbarian class balanced? Mm-hmm. And And I hadn't really... I don't know that it really occurred to me before. It used to be when I was a little kid. I mean, you just want to be as super powerful as possible, right? Right. You want to be the star. Yeah. And this idea that, oh, wait, you actually want everyone to be the star, like started to creep in around that time. Mm-hmm. I'd say the thing that really did it for me, though, was getting involved in, uh, we mentioned it before, but getting involved in Living Greyhawk. So around the beginning of 2000 or so, uh, when it first began, I started to get back into the RPGA, which I hadn't played in for like four or five years. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, because they were sponsoring this this Living Greyhawk thing, and that led to a, you know writing for Living Greyhawk and writing a lot of meeting a lot of people through it, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, my first real break was probably writing several books for Fancy Flight's Midnight Setting for third edition. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so you got started there. Uh, what was that experience like working, especially for Living Greyhawk, where it was a, you know, that's a very, I'm trying to, it, that, that's a complicated thing because you are wearing a lot of hats in terms of what you need to do in games right there's there's the community aspect there's the adventure creation aspect there's working with other regions to make sure you know everything's flowing smoothly how did that uh how did that transition go for you well uh it definitely got me thinking more about not only how to so when i would dm i would often think about I I just need to make this cool story happen, right? I just need a handful of notes. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I was going to write something for, it's going to premiere at conventions all around my region, or maybe it's a a core meta-regional or whatever, it's going to appear, you know, who knows where across the country. Mm -hmm. I now had to figure out how do you impart these ideas of this, you know, potential awesome epic scene that I can see in my head. How do I impart that to somebody else? Mm -hmm. So suddenly clarity of writing, uh, taking into the effect that, you know, who knows what the group of characters is going to be. They might not have a wizard. Is there a way to solve this without arcane magic? Like, otherwise the party just dies. Like, that's not a thing you want to write. Right. Or maybe it is, but you, you should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remembering some of the adventures from back in those days. Well, there was definitely a, a level of challenge as well that some people were looking for but how do you put that in an adventure without you know overwhelming other groups mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. the you mentioned the rpga um for those of you who aren't uh familiar with that term it's the role-playing game association uh, essentially and it was the precursor to what is now the adventures league in in a lot of ways um it, they ran different campaigns offered different adventures um and it wasn't just D&D. They offered a lot of different role-playing oh, yeah. um, offerings and would offer convention support. And uh, for a while, it was fee-based, right? You would pay a fee and you would become a member of this group. The Polyhedron Magazine was the, was the newsletter slash magazine of the RPGA. And it was, it was a really interesting time um, to, to be a gamer, because that was sort of one of the only ways you as a, an amateur game designer could get your work recognized. If you look at the people that are sort of the big names at, at Watsi, Paizo, actually a lot of places, mm-hmm. many of them came out of the RPGA. Yeah. Like uh, if you look, it's like, so like Merle's, it was a, a tribe member, just like we were mm-hmm. uh, Tulak. Uh, Mona Bullman, like all those names. Yeah. I mean, Chris Tulak and Jason Bullman were the, the two tried members with me in Wisconsin. Right. If you look at uh, Peter Lee, who works at Watsi, worked Mm -hmm. on minis, worked on uh, board games, a bunch of stuff. Uh, He's from Wisconsin too. Like a lot of people, they just hired a brand new community manager Mm -hmm. from uh, Chicago. Okay. Who who was out of living Greyhawk. Okay. So. Oh, okay. Brandy, Brandy just, uh, is from here 
Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. That goes back. Yeah, and and it's funny because w- my first attempt at getting something published was not even D anD. d It was in Torg and Paranoia. Oh. And I got those uh, leads through the RPGA, where the uh, the company was West End Games, but they wanted convention adventures uh, for those. For those, I wrote uh, for Cthulhu, and I wrote for Pinnacle the same way. Yep. Like by playing stuff at, at cons that people would play with you in many ways, it was a, a great way to network, right? Cause you'd sit down at a table with someone and you'd spend four hours with them. And it wasn't so much that they would, you know, automatically know you're a great writer, but they would at least know that you were someone they could probably work with. Right. right. You know, for at least on one project. Right. Um, if, if you can go through the rigors of getting an adventure in a form that can be spread among DMs at a, you know, through the RPGA, through Adventures League, that is at least recognition that you have done it at least once. Yeah. And that's and better you, than you met about... some deadline somewhere. You, right. you turned over products. Yeah. And and if they're lucky and actually played it with you, they might even learn, you know, hey, you're you're reasonable to talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, they get you get they get to try you out or demo you in a way before they ever actually have to like potentially offer you a, a job. Yeah. And it's funny, you, you talked about the unearthed arcana. And I think back, well, I think of now how people kind of the expectations people have for getting third party material or splat books or wizards, you know, supplements. Back in the day, I remember when Unearthed Arcana came out. That there, this was pre-internet, right? But oh yeah, <laughs> there 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 was a mix of outrage and joy that is not even comparable to what we see today, right? Some of the old school players were like, "Why are you ruining my D and D game with this yeah, this with options <laughs> book with these other options? Everything I need is here, you know, you money grubbing so and sos. How dare you?" Where everyone out, yeah, and then the, you had the group of finally, I get to play yeah. something other than you know these eight classes and well, especially because there were, you know, it was this idea that when you had the original D and D, right, you you could be a fighter, you could be a wizard, you could be a thief, you could be a cleric, and that's pretty much it, yeah. right? I mean, they had the racial classes, but they were basically mm-hmm. derivatives of the others. Right. But there are there are other iconic like I want to be the ranger, right? Like mm-hmm. there was token out there with Middle Earth and stuff, and yeah, you know, I want to be the druid. I want to be these variations of these other classes. Yeah. So yeah, no, totally, very very popular with with the set that wanted to do something else. Right, and then the the methods of uh, attribute uh, creation. Oh, yeah. Well, if you were a fighter, roll 96 or barbarian or whatever it was yeah. rather than the 46. But if you were, you know, you only rolled three D six, you know, to get your intelligence or whatever. And that was, I remember that again, being very <laughs> divisive in the world of D and D back then. Uh, yeah. and now, now it's like you can go online and trip over thousands of free or very cheap products um, that, that are, you know, ubiquitous and many of them are quite good exactly yeah, yeah for sure some of them are but a lot of them are also true <laughs> so uh when you switched over from playing to dming uh i'm always interested in hearing this as well especially in with people who have done a lot of writing uh, and a lot of dming 
how did that transition go for you uh, from player to DM? Uh, well, so that group that I had met in high school that was playing in, in West Bend, uh, they were sponsoring a convention called uh, Midsummer Revel, so, mm-hmm. uh, which later morphed into Milwaukee Summer Revel and is uh, still oh, going geez, on. It's still going on. It's in the like, there's been, there, I think there might be 30 of them now. I don't know. It's, it's, it's well up there. It's been, yeah. it's one of the more longer continuous running conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they sponsored it and, uh, I wanted to go and my, my parents were, were okay with that, but they, they weren't going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. They were going to give me like $5 or something a day, which, you know, was going to maybe buy me some food. And so I needed to figure out how to get in. And if you ran an adventure every day, your badge was free. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I'm like, okay, well I've played for a bit and I, I, you know, I've been at least at home scribbling on a notebook, you know, ideas for adventures and stuff, drawing out maps with my, you know, DMG and, you know, cause they had the random generate your dungeon. Oh yeah. And so I'm like, all right, I, I can do this. I'm going to, I'm going to show up and DM at this con, you know, just randomly and get a free badge. Nice. And, uh, it went really well. Good. actually yeah that's yeah i mean that's better than some I, stories i've heard or told myself yeah i think i think part of it was overwhelming enthusiasm mm-hmm. but also i had had a lot of good role models mm-hmm. uh people in in wisconsin will remember some of them but uh like i played with keith polster you might know mm-hmm. kevin malka uh, some of the folks that did a lot of writing in the early years of the RPGA, okay. Todd Lang, John Kugath. I don't know if, if any of those ring a bell to you because you were East Coast, but yeah. um, they, they, I'd seen a lot of different people run adventures mm-hmm. and I had kind of come up with this, you know, what made me happy when they mm-hmm. did it. And I'm like, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going right. to do what makes me happy. And then hopefully other people will be. Yeah. And so were you running something you had written or were you running a published adventure? Uh, So in that, at that particular one, I hadn't run anything that I had written. We were given adventures to run. Mm -hmm. So we're like, here are uh, some of them were ones that the con had written and we're having like two or three tables run at a time. Some of them were RPGA adventures. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was handed a thing that I got to, to read over and use. Okay. Yeah. That's, that is a bit of a different experience than creating your own stuff and seeing how it goes. Yeah. And I, I, and, and I had started doing that like at home a little bit and this gave me the the impetus to try and run for other people at home. Mm -hmm. But in some ways I was less concerned about running for a group of strangers than I was for the people that I was going to see regularly. Yeah. Yeah. I was cause I, right. Cause if they're unhappy, well, I still have to see them every week. Right. But if these other people were unhappy, I'm like, ah, you know, right. I'll, we'll, we'll muddle through for a few hours. Then hopefully I'll never see them again. That's true. And that's going to lead us into our main topic today, which is tips for DMing 5e. So when I think of DMing skills, I think of the DMs who used to travel in in that RPGA Adventures League type of circuit, right? Because at just one convention, these DMs might deal with four different adventures, 50 or more different players just in one weekend. And when I think of that, I think of Greg, because Greg has been DMing at conventions for, I don't want to say 30 years, but definitely over 20 years. Uh, 
and Greg's learned a thing or two about running games while DMing for those hundreds and thousands of players uh, over the years. So I wanted Greg to come on to the show and talk about DMing tips, whether you're DMing for a home group, uh, DMing for an organized play campaign like the Adventures League, or just DMing uh, in public at a game store for a one-shot convention. So Greg, can you talk a little bit about some of the tips and tricks and skills for DMs that, that you've learned over the years? Sure. Let's, let's build off that last thing that I, I was just talking about. Okay. So when you think about DMs, uh, I kind of break them down into sort of three styles. And, mm-hmm. and I guess I want to champion one as being better than the other two. Okay. So some DMs are adversarial and they see the game as a, a meme versus you and either I win or you win. And, and I'm, I'm very against that because the whole point is that, that it is literally a game, right? We're not playing for money. We're, we're, we're playing to have a good time. Okay. There's also some folks that see themselves as the impartial adjudicator. Okay. So like, I'm going to roll dice in front of you. Oh, you crit, I crit, you all die. It just, you know, that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess there is some uh, fair play aspect to that. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, I think the what you want to be is the facilitator. Mm-hmm. Like your goal is for everyone to have fun. Like regardless of the play style of the players, are they, they want to murder a lot of stuff. They're murder hobos. They want to, they want to explore. They want to do social. They want to do whatever it is. If you especially about a, think about a convention, people paid a lot of money. They, they paid to travel. They bought a hotel room. They bought a badge. They bought tickets. They spent a ton of money and you are there essentially as a worker, right? You're a face of the convention and they are in some way you know, compensating you, whether it's badge or hotel or whatever, mm-hmm. to make sure those people have fun. Mm-hmm. So if you get a group and they really love, uh, you know, dungeon crawling and hack and slashing stuff, and maybe it's not your deal, in some ways, it's kind of your job to do that anyway, right? Sure. Like, it's what they paid for. It's right. what they're hoping for. And within the limits of what you can do, right? Like, if you're running a convention adventure, it it has sort of a plot already right. set, right. but yeah. you can deviate, but you can't go and write your own adventure right. within that. Yeah. So, so what you're kind of talking about, there is a social contract. I, I feel like um, sure. when, when you're DMing for a show, especially if you're getting compensated, what, like you said, a badge or whatever um, there, there is a social contract that says the player's, uh, enjoyment is something that is of the of well, yeah we could, we could say of of greater value uh, than than normal than if you're running a home game at your house where you know your friends are coming and eating your food and uh, <laughs> yeah and, you know at at that point the the social contract is different um, at that point the social contract for a home game should be established early. Um, and, you know, it's how are we going to run this? And as long as everyone agrees and continues with that social contract, um, everyone should should be happy um, with your coming. Yeah. Don't be afraid to literally just ask, what do you like? Mm-hmm. So that's a thing I think that people are sometimes hesitant to ask mm-hmm. and also hesitant to sort of lay down some expectations, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, maybe I, one of my players says, I really like the chance to, you know, have my backstory come up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So especially in a home game, I can 
find some way to work that in, right? We can adjust mm -hmm. and, and, you know, your, your long lost grandfather turns out to have been, you know, the reason he never came back because he's kidnapped by the bad guy. And now you have this like reason to go into the dungeon to try and rescue him. Right. You know, bringing those sorts of discussions up front will make sure everyone has more fun. And especially in a home game, assumedly, you're at least acquaintances, right? You at least sort of know each other. So right. you all want to have fun. Yeah. Like hopefully your goal isn't to make someone suffer. Yeah. After, after you've played 20 games with Bob or with Jenny or you know, with whoever, yeah. you, you probably know their play style. It's, it's interesting to sit down with a group of strangers at a you know, public play uh, arena and you can ask, what do you like to do? Some people are shy and they, they just like, oh, whatever. Uh, I always like to look for clues in, in, in short interactions to try to figure out what kind of player they are and deliver that play style without them having to ask. Character introductions. Yeah. That's your, that's your hint, right? Yeah. Do they tell you that they carry a giant axe? Mm -hmm. okay this people this person likes to hit things with their axe yes do they tell you about the colors of their clothes and their you know how they smile or okay they're gonna want to do social stuff mm -hmm. you know you can you can pick up a lot of those details you know right with the character introduction yeah uh you also sometimes the way i see some people have spent you know 20 hours personally painting their mini Mm -hmm. Where other people have like, you know, a, this die is going to be me. Yeah. It does kind of tell you about how much they're involved in the, uh, the development of their character. Mm -hmm. It's true. And even the, like what kind of character sheet they have, um, how, how they arrange their dice, right? Do, do they have different dice for different spells? Oh, yeah. Right. Or, you know, these are, these are my fireball dice. These are my, you know, whatever spell you want it to say. Uh, dice or or you know these are the dice when I have advantage and these are the dice when I have disadvantage and they'll they'll say that right at the table right they'll they'll yeah. put their their things out and those little things can tell you how uh, focused on combat how focused on the rules they are uh, as opposed to the person who tell you know sings their clan's battle song during character introductions <laughs> yep. you you know that you know if you start bringing their clan up at different points, they're going to be overjoyed to, to share uh, that, that backstory. Yeah. It's, and it's always good to know uh, to, if you can figure it out quickly, like did people come as a group? Because mm -hmm. the people who came as a group, they're going to entertain themselves regardless of what you do. So just trying to play off their, their group is, is pretty valuable. Yeah. Just kind of get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Or, or be the straight man, right? Yeah. Or if uh, five people came and they have one person who randomly got sat there, then it kind of becomes your job to make sure the one person isn't forgotten. Right. Right. So uh, just in terms of somebody who is a brand new DM, right? They've never DM before. They've played a bit, but they think they want to get into DMing. Um, what are kind of can you, some of the basics of how to run a game smoothly um is is there anything that you have that that would give them a uh, 
a, a quick are we thinking are we thinking more along the lines of a home game or are we thinking more along the lines of no, a convention game or really or any, any, any you know, just in general what okay. what what are some, what are some things that you would suggest to kind of be aware of or you know this is going to be your go-to thing um that, that okay. you're going to do for your entire dming career uh i'm sure you've heard this before but the yes and or yes but is mm-hmm. is very powerful mm-hmm. right enable enable the player to do the thing they want to do within the limits of the story so you want to uh i want to try to do to kick down the store oh yes and when you do that you you also discover insert mm-hmm. thing that the adventure wanted you to to find mm-hmm. or the yes but i need you to it's locked and so when you go to kick it, you bounce off it. So you're going to either need to figure a way to, to pound the door down or maybe, you know, use your roguish skills or whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the ability to let them try is always valuable. Mm-hmm. But, and I've, I've seen this with some adversarial DMs, don't, uh, don't not give them an idea of the odds. Mm-hmm. So the... I want to try and talk the dragon into giving me his horde. Oh yeah, totally. You can, you can absolutely try that. Give me your deception check. Oh, you got a 42. Well, that fails because there's no chance. And so now he's angry. Gotcha. You know, the, the idea of like giving the player, letting them trap themselves is, is a poor idea. I think it just makes the player unhappy. Mm-hmm. If they had known that there was no chance because it's obvious. I mean, if it's obvious, Mm-hmm. you know not barring you know background information they don't know right. uh i think it's it's kind of a a poor game to to do that yeah i i think that's that there's always this friction between D as a game and D as a storytelling vehicle that dms often have trouble with even even experienced ones when they want um to to either a make the game something interesting, but it hurts the story or make the story something interesting, but it hurts the game. Like hiding information that, that a, that a player or a character might know. That's always a rough one for me. It's like, you know, make a DC 20 uh, history check when you see this uh, painting and they fail. And it's super important information for the, the story so hiding it behind that that check, especially a difficult check, is counterintuitive to me. Yeah, I've been so I've been thinking about that in some adventures that I've been working on, as to having there be if it's critical, mm-hmm. having there either be it's just given to you, or that there's multiple ways to get it throughout the story. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, seeing the painting lets you realize something about the family's history that helps you solve the mis- the the mystery that's going on mm-hmm. then maybe also talking to the staff could you know one of the staff members also knows this having worked in the house for years mm-hmm. or maybe you know going through their personal belongings the dead person's belongings you could also discover a letter that would let you find this mm-hmm. this now gives you three routes by which this important clue can be revealed Right. And, you know, makes it a lot more likely it's going to happen, but also gives you something to play with if they fail, right? Gives you ways in which you can funnel alternative ways to search for the clue. Mm-hmm. How do you come down on the fudging of die rolls? Oh, you absolutely should. I'm okay. 100% in favor. Yeah. Uh, Why is that? 
so two reasons, uh, both for and against your players, uh, and and they're all about fun. Mm-hmm. So I think there are things that are anticlimactic that are not necessarily fun mm-hmm. that can happen because of a die roll, like a a sort of like save or die situation where you've had this campaign that's been going for, you know, years and they get to the final guy and this is all you, this is, this fight is what you have planned tonight. And in round one, something happens where a weird confluence of events and one die roll basically says, all right, after five minutes, you've ended the entire campaign. Mm -hmm. I would probably fudge that just because the, the, players have been you know building up that this is going to be this epic fight right and i wouldn't want to disappoint them but also the same thing a lot of times players will do something they'll come up with something that's super inventive and is a really a really great idea Mm -hmm. and then maybe you know if they could just roll a three or higher they're gonna they're gonna be able to do it based on the math of the game Mm -hmm. and then they roll a two Mm-hmm. You know, eh, I want to at least give them, you know, some level of success. Like, oh, okay. Well, you didn't quite pull off the the epic move, but you still succeeded some. Okay. You know, yeah. The, that idea of rewarding a great idea without having the die roll have to always come out, mm-hmm. uh, I think is is pretty valuable. Yeah. I mean, there there have been times when I have just said, don't bother rolling. Uh, even even if it's not like a 50-50 chance because the idea is so good and it moves the story ahead so well that it's more valuable to the game itself, both the game and the story, to just let it succeed. Yeah. And then sometimes failure can be, can be great. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, either, you know, the NPC's failure or the player's uh, character failures. There are there are times where story assumes, you know, a certain level of ability and, you know, both the characters just they're they're just not up to it. Well, that doesn't mean that the story has to end. Right. Right. You know, you run away to fight another day or, oh, you're captured. But then when you're captured, they bring you into the dungeon so now you've gotten past all the traps. You've gotten past all of the, you know, the, the wandering monsters and you're in the bad guy's inner sanctum. And now you just have to figure out how to get past this locked door of this room they threw you in. Mm-hmm. And you're right back in it without having to do the sneaking part that maybe you weren't going to be that great at anyway. Yeah. That failure can give you a whole nother story that, that still gets you where you want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I've seen DMs have trouble with are sort of the mechanical uh, jobs of DMing, keeping initiative, um, keeping track of conditions. Do you have any tips uh, or how do you handle that smoothly? Uh, So I've played with uh, different ways to handle initiative for many different ways. The way I currently do now, I actually uh, learned at a convention from a a fellow I met in Chicago. Uh, What he does is he writes everyone's initiative in a circle in the order in which they're sitting at the table. Mm -hmm. So he gets a piece of paper, puts them in a circle. And then when everyone goes, he, so first round, draw a line under their, under their particular initiative. Okay. Second draw, you know, around, 
the side and basically draw a box, eventually draw a box once everyone has gone four times. Okay. And then he starts to draw like a, you know, 45 degree rotated box. So like a diamond around. Okay. And just keep drawing bigger and bigger rotated boxes around each person Hmm. one side at a time. And then what I also do is if they have a condition, uh, I usually write. So what I'll do is where I'm seated, I will write my monsters sort of in the order of their initiative and I'll just write next to their name if they have a condition Mm -hmm. and then cross it out or put little tick marks for how long they have it or something like that when it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's a perfect way. I will yeah. say that some groups do a really good job of, of nominating one player to be in charge. Mm-hmm. I also like the uh, putting like little tents on your screen in mm-hmm. the order in which people are going to go. But I don't, I usually don't like a screen. Yeah. I, use, I don't, we, we short people don't like screens as much. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's my, I run it a lot at cons and, and at con tables with, you know, up to seven people at a table yeah. Space is a premium and the, true. the screen takes up too much real estate. Yeah. So were there any other tips or tricks or you know things to be aware of for, for new DMs? Um, some pitfalls. You, I know what I was going to ask. You're a teacher. Mm-hmm. How often do the skills that you have used in the classroom as a teacher translate to DMing? Oh, all the time. I think it's, it's back and forth. Uh, in both cases, you are presenting to a group, right? And you're trying to keep them as interested as possible. Yeah. So uh, I have been a college professor and uh, right now I teach high school at a, at a very, uh, a school for, for pretty gifted people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you still need to keep their attention, right? Regardless of, of the age. Right. And so that, that level of volume control, voice control, being dynamic, uh, making sure everyone's involved is, is way key Mm -hmm. as is uh, making sure that you are clear, right? Can you explain what you're trying to explain so that everyone can picture it and follow Mm -hmm. Uh, totally very, very similar skills. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ability to write down a few small notes and use that to still talk for an hour or two, right? Mm-hmm. right. Is is totally key, mm-hmm. as is the ability to pivot. So, mm-hmm. and this is a, a suggestion I have for, for new DMs. Do not let the adventure constrain you. Mm-hmm. If the story goes in another way, you can often find a way to come back to the story, mm-hmm. right? So if they wanna go to town, and going back to town is not even really ever considered. There's really no reason they can't, unless the story specifically says that they can't go back for some reason. Yeah. Uh, then sure, let them go back to town. Let them, you know, maybe that's a good opportunity. And that's that same thing happens in teaching, right? Mm-hmm. You will have a some student, but what about this? Mm-hmm. And if it's not too wildly far astray, it's you know they're they're interested. They want to know a thing. We might as well talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, the transitions I think are often important too in DMing, where if you are, you know, you're in a role playing section, but you're about to go into a section that's more based on rules, whether it's combat or, or exploration, like you're making skill checks and stuff, having phrases or having even motions that 
mm-hmm. that tell the, the the players, all right, I am now doing like this motion with my hand. So that means something is changing or uh, I use this phrase, right? What do you do, right? What do you do is always an right. important phrase in D&D or how do you do that? That's the famous, uh, the famous, I don't know, what do you think sort of teacher response, right? Right, right. The, the you tell me, which is the same as the what do you do in D&D. Right. I'm, I'm done telling my portion of the story now. It is time for you to take up the storytelling mantle or the game mantle and tell me what's happening. That's, yeah, I've never thought of it that way. The, the old uh, Socratic method of, of getting yeah. an answer, sure. It's totally the same. Like I, I can just tell you the answer or I could just tell you what your character does, right. but I, I don't want to. I want you to think for yourself and I want to share this experience with you of us learning about either in this case, the story and instead of chemistry, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. So also uh, and, time management, by the way, oh, make sure that you do time management. Yes. That, that is, that is probably, especially if you're running games at a convention, the most yeah. important thing because people who are poor at time management and I can't say I'm always the best. The first few times I ran games at conventions, you know, it's a four hour slot. I got lots of time. I got lots of time. I got lots of time. Oh, I have no there's, time. <laughs> there's, there's 20 minutes left in the slot and we still have two combat encounters to go. Whoopsie. Uh, so yes, you, you have to learn quickly that sort of self pacing and to be aware of time, even as you are not aware of time at all. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at a convention when, you know, at the end of your slot, someone else is going to come to that table and play there. Mm-hmm. And all your players probably have something scheduled, right? Like right. they, they need to go. They have something they're doing. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. That's a great it's point. Just like teaching. They have yeah. another class to go to. You got to make sure you're on time. Yeah. That's awesome. So any other final tips uh, or things to be aware of for DMs? I, I, communicate don't be afraid and communicate talk to people see what you know get tips from other people talk to your players see what they like and you know if somebody tells you you know i i really don't like when a dm does something you know do what you can to avoid doing that at least with them mm-hmm. you know see what see what it is you'll you will like any experience experience lots and lots of different play styles and sort of develop what works well for you. Awesome. So thank you, Greg. Um, I'm going to do some Patreon shout outs here. Uh, Thank you so much for, to our patrons, Jim Fitzpatrick, Joseph Peralta, Merrick Blackman, Mike Amur, Ninjabi, the Rainmaker, Rich Ruane, Rory McLeod, and Savannah Sizer. And if you would like to support the show, there are many ways you can help us. For just a dollar a month, you can help our patron Patreon at www.patreon.com slash MMP to help us pay our costs of hosting and editing and so on. For that dollar, you get access to special content from Down With D&D, MMP, and Pandas Talking Games. Or if you can't help us with any cash, we understand it's rough times these days just give us a review on twitter or facebook whatever uh medium that you use uh to listen or to talk about games uh, talking about us on social media is a huge help speaking of social media greg where can people find you or follow your work 
Uh, if you want to know about uh, myself and the other admins for the D&D Adventures League, you can go to our website, dndadventuresleague.org, and find out about getting games there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at scaredthegreen, except the is spelled 7H3. Because that's not confusing at all. Because that's not confusing at all. I regret it every day. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. I regret most of my life, but that's just my name. Or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com and chat with all of us about D&D or whatever games that you are playing. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Hey, Greg, what are we going to do now? Pretty sure we're going to go kill some monsters. Yes, we are. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?